0: I Sister White. We will not fear. The kingdom is alive. The
1: kingdom's on the moon with the poor and the meek and the hungry and the lonely. I'll never
0: forget it. Welcome to a 2020 version of Adventist Voices Spectrum Magazine's podcast. I'm Alexander Carpenter, and today I am joined with my longtime and good friend, Ronald Osborne. Welcome. Thank you. Great to be here, Alex. And you're an associate professor down at La Sierra University teaching classes on Christian belief and it's great having you back on the show. Last time we talked uh, about books and movies, and today we're going to be theming our conversation around the writing life. And you're a perfect person for that because you are prolific. And I say that because you have published multiple books. So we'll be talking about a few of those. And you also recently published an article in Church Times which is an Anglican publication
1: out of the UK. Mm -hmm. Nice
0: called blood beneath broad stripes and bright stars in this, the little sub uh, title says Ron Osborne argues that violence is at the heart of American civil religion. It sounds great. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you. And I hope people do read it. We'll include a link to it. Uh, Do you mind just jumping into your kind of argument there? Sure. Well, actually, that's kind of an old article. Um, I mean, I, I presented something at Loma
1: Linda University back around the time of the um, the election involving uh, Barack Obama and Mitt Romney. And I, um, they had a panel discussion there about politics and religion, and I, I offered some reflections on. Um, patriotic flag veneration in the United States and the idea that both political parties are united in their um, in a shared religion of, of kind of nationalistic uh, flag devotion. So when a friend of mine reached out to me and asked if I would submit something for Church Times, I said, sure, I'd be happy to do that. And I um, pulled up this piece, which I think is still re- relevant, maybe even more so today, and uh, made some revisions. And there it is.
0: So I wanted to just read a a line from it since our theme is the writing life. We'll be um, doing a bit of um, short reading here. Um, You write violence is not simply an accidental or occasional interruption in American political life. Our practices of patriotic flag veneration hint at a disturbing fact that violence lies at the very heart of our social order. What do you mean by that?
1: So I can't claim any great originality here. Basically, I'm I'm um, summarizing arguments that have been made by a few other people whose work I really appreciate and have even taught in some of my classes. I back around 2012, I taught a class at the University of Southern California on religion and violence, and I um, the primary text was a Catholic theologian by the name of William Kavanagh, who wrote a fantastic book called The Myth of Religious Violence, published by Oxford University Press. Um, And so some of these ideas are really, I have to give credit where credit's due, um, very much inspired by Kavanaugh. And also by another book that um, Kavanaugh himself makes a lot of use of, which is called Blood Sacrifice and the Nation by these um, scholars Marvin and Engel. And in that book, what they want to argue is that uh, the... The, the true religion, well, he, first of all, taking it a step back, if you really want to know what people worship, if you want to know what their religion is, according to, to um, these scholars, uh, Marvin and Engel, you need to look at what functionally is the highest source of uh, devotion for somebody not what people verbally profess. So most people in the United States today, if you ask them, what's your religion, most people still would, um, would identify with Christianity. Right. Yeah. Uh, even though those numbers are declining pretty dramatically, right. Mm -hmm. With, with the younger generations, but, but still a majority of people, I think somewhere in the vicinity of 70% of Americans self-identify as Christian, uh, whether Catholic or Protestant, um, but what Marvin and Angle want to say is if you really want to know what people, people's religion is, you should ask the question, what are they willing to kill or die for? And if you said to most people, are you willing to kill people for your Christianity? They might say,
0: <laughs> you know, no, yeah, sure. But if
1: you ask them, are you, would you kill somebody to protect the flag? Sure many would say yes sure and so they want to argue that that is actually the the most powerful religion in america today is patriotic um flag veneration or flag worship the flag is like a totem of the tribe yeah and they want to say that um that you know we we describe ourselves as being a nation of law or we we say that we're we are bound by the constitution yeah but they want to say that actually that's way too cold and abstract. People don't get worked up about parchment and paper, you know, words on paper, right?
0: Yeah, few read the Constitution.
1: Yeah, so what you need are potent symbols.
0: Yeah, you distill all these abstract ideas into something that people can wrap their heads around.
1: Yeah, and the most potent symbol of the nation is, of course, the flag. And what is it that makes the flag so potent? Well, you know, if you ask people, why do we treat the flag with certain kinds of respect? Why is it that you can't let the flag touch the ground? Or, you know, there's uh, strict rules about how you should dispose of a flag, burning, I think. Yes,
0: burying, I think.
1: There are strict rules about how you display a flag. Mm -hmm. So actually in most... um, you know, churches in the Adventist tradition, um, you'll find flags on the pulpit of the church.
0: Yeah. The podium up there, up
1: there, up there behind, Uh, you know, and here's a question for you. Which side of the church is the flag displayed on?
0: It's on the right side of the, is it the right side of the pastor?
1: So, so yeah. So this is basically flag etiquette. It was, um, there was a congressional act passed in the 1920s, basically specifying where and how the flag should be displayed. And um, according to the the code uh, it needs to be displayed to the right hand of the speaker as they face the audience, which is the place of highest honor and any other flag should be displayed to the speaker's left.
0: And which flag is that usually?
1: Well, and of of course in a, (laughs) in Christian churches, it turns out that that's the Christian flag. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Which is pretty remarkable when you think about it. Incredible. Like why this, you know, symbolically we're saying the American flag is actually in the place of highest honor. And if you ask people about this, you know, you often get these kind of strange attempts at rationalization. Like, well, it's because, uh, um, you know, America is what gives us our religious liberty or things like that. Mm-hmm. Right. But it's it's a pretty stunning um seemingly small, but stunning gesture. When you think about the fact that many early Christians actually went to their deaths because they refused to just burn a little bit of incense to honor Caesar once a year. Yeah. You know, and I think that this is our kind of modern day equivalent of burning incense is, uh, is, uh, you know, putting the symbols of the, of the state or the nation in these kinds of places of high honor. Um, a lot of a lot of problematic things going on there. But wait, I don't think I I I, I uh, we ever answered the question. Why do people say that you respect the flag and treat it with all this kind of veneration? What would you say?
0: Um, I, because people have died for it is often the line. Um, but what's the problem with that?
1: Yeah. Well, there you go. It's it's the blood sacrifice that makes the totem symbol potent. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. So if we say, if we, if people will um, buy the, the idea that, that um, in a functional sense, we are flag worshipers, then the question becomes, why do we worship the flag? It's because nationalism is a religion of blood sacrifice. Yeah. And um, yeah. And if, of course we could talk a lot more about that and, and, to what degree and it's appropriate for Christians to honor people who have died, you know, in service to the country and things like that and how that should be honored or remembered. Don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to dishonor anyone's memory. Right. Sure. Um, But there are also these troubling questions about uh, the relationship between Christian faith and um, other kinds of other, other forces that make sort of clamorous demands on our, on our allegiance and our devotion.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, as you're talking about the flag there, I am just remembering back to my Pathfinder days and what an honor it was to carry the flags into the church on Mm -hmm. Pathfinder day and what um, respect we had to uh, show to those flags, you know, make sure they don't touch the ground. That was the biggest important, um, you know, uh, lesson I learned that Sabbath uh, as a 13 year old or whatever I was and carrying those in, you know, I just remember the parade and of course the American flag was first leading
1: right. this little band of Christians. <laughs> well, it was very interesting after um, September 11, 2001 mm-hmm. um, there was this kind of surge of, of flag devotion you, you might yeah. say, right? Yeah. Um, and a couple, I was living in Washington DC at the time. The couple a couple of things that um, happened in the immediate aftermath of that those terrorist attacks. Uh, one was there was a, uh, a worship service at Sligo Church, in which um, the Pathfinders marched in, led by a military honor guard. Wow! And the, the honor guard was carrying bolt action rifles right down the center aisle of the church. Uh-huh. You know that that's remarkable, especially if you you know, know anything about Avana's yeah, history of sure. conscientious objection and pacifism going all the way back to the, the 19th century. Yeah. Um, the other thing that was stunning was, um, to me anyways, was in front of the general conference building, you know, they display the American flag, uh, and the, the Christian flag. Yeah. And, uh, the, f- the somebody in the building somebody in the plant services or something thought it would be appropriate to start um flying the american flag higher and and lowering the christian flag actually so the american flag was at a higher level and so this was being done for quite a quite a time where the the christian flag was literally not being raised to its full height it was being just like raised like quarter mass quarter quarter It was like kind of like three morning,
0: just constantly (laughs) (laughs) morning.
1: No, it wasn't. It was more subtle. You know, it wasn't like, um, it was just several feet below the full, the full height at which it could have been raised, which would, you know, so the American, so the American flag was visibly flying higher than, than all the other flags out there. And you know, the Adventist church is a world body. It's not the, an American church. Right. And so I began to press a relative of mine. Yes. Um, Ted Wilson, who was working in the general conference building. And I began asking him, uncle Ted, what's going on? You know, and I kept repeatedly pressing him because I guess plant services was somehow under his, <laughs> uh, you know, his watch. And, for, you know, eventually the, it was changed. I guess he or somebody talked to the individual doing it. and it, But it was a pretty significant period of time in which the American
0: flight was being flown at the highest you know, the highest height. That's a incredible anecdote. Weirdly, it gives me hope. Uh, basically the way that we can change the church is, is uh, just asking relatives to pester other relatives to there get something done. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So let's turn to um, a book that you wrote that also has to do with violence. Death before the fall came out in 2014. And um, I would like to kick this conversation off Um by actually having you read a passage from it um, that I think is beautifully written.
1: Sure. Well, for, by way of context, you know, I start the book in, the book is wrestling with the problem of animal suffering and uh, the challenges that poses for us uh, when we think about the meaning of creation. And so I start off the book talking a little bit about my experiences growing up as a child in Zimbabwe, Zimbabwe. And, uh, my family would go camping at this remote spot known as mana pools. Um, and so, okay, here's the passage you, you pulled out from me, Alex. Um, before dawn, my parents would already be waking my sisters and me for a new safari since the early hours of the day when the air was still cool and crisp were the best time to spot rare animals. All around us was a world that was deeply mysterious, untamed, dangerous, beautiful, and good, waiting to be explored. And the danger was part of its goodness and its beauty. Herein lies the central riddle of this book. One might, of course, imagine other worlds in other universes without predatory creatures such as crocodiles and lions, and these might be very good and very beautiful worlds as well. But the particular goodness and beauty of Africa's wild places that were such an important part of my childhood were inextricably linked to cycles of birth and death, as well as suffering, ferocity, and animal predation. Pools was very good, its lions, jackals, leopards, fish eagles, and cobras included. Yet Pools, as a microcosm of nature as a whole, was also an untamed and even unremittingly harsh world, a sealed economy in which all of life was, in the final analysis, sustained by the deaths of often in spectacular and prolonged ways of other creatures. There is a doubleness to all of animal existence, extending right back to the very beginning, as far as we can tell. With birth and death, comedy and tragedy, suffering and grandeur, appearing as the interwoven and inseparable aspects of a single reality that defies easy moral categorization. For believers in the God of Jewish and Christian scripture, this poses a grave theological and moral dilemma that is different in kind from the problem of evil arising from the exercise of human free will. It is also distinct from, if perhaps related to, the problem of quote-unquote natural evil posed by geological upheavals that take human lives, such as the earthquake in Haiti and the tsunamis in Indonesia and Japan. Simply stated, the trouble is this. Animals, as far as we know, do not have the capacity for anything approaching human moral reasoning— and will never be able to comprehend their own suffering in metaphysical or theological terms that might give that suffering meaning for them. Why then would a just and loving God, not the impersonal spirit of Hegelian idealism that achieves its final ends through the violent dialectics of history as a slaughter bench. Nor the divinity of Hindu belief who is at once Brahma the creator and Shiva the destroyer of worlds. But the undivided and good creator God of the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament require or permit such a world to exist. This world is one in which the harrowing suffering of innocent creatures through the violence of other creatures appears at once fraught with terrible savageness, and at the same time part of an order that is delicately balanced, achingly beautiful, and finely tuned to sustain tremendous diversity of life. If there is a rationally discernible quote-unquote intelligent design to the natural world, as some believers claim, should we not conclude that the design reveals a pitilessly indifferent, if not malevolent, intelligence? Why is it that creationists who read design from the surface of nature never rhapsodize about the wondrous irreducible complexity of AIDS viruses or tapeworms or serrated shark teeth tiered five rows
0: deep? That's beautiful. Thank you so much. And I'd like to um, follow up that um, passage by you talking a little bit about why you chose to take on this issue of, of suffering and really confront this problem of evil? Hmm.
1: Well, you know, the the problem of suffering is something I started really struggling with in earnest when I was uh, a college student. And uh, this my senior year of college um, at Atlantic Union College, I was an English major, and um, we had a pretty rigorous senior thesis requirement there for the English majors. So, you know, you had to write like a 50-page paper, right? And the, um, the topic that I chose or the author who I chose was Elie Wiesel. And basically, I spent my senior year of college immersed in Holocaust literature and specifically the writings of Elie Wiesel, his novels, his, uh, his memoirs, and, um, and some of his plays, So I was wrestling with this problem of suffering, you know, going quite a ways back and, you know, trying to think through um, the theodicy dilemma, which I think, you know, any thoughtful person at some point in their life is bound to have to grapple with if you're a believer of any kind. Um, But more recently, uh, you know, I began reflecting not on human suffering, but on animal suffering in the context of debates in the Adventist community about creation and evolution, and it was around 2010, 2011, mm-hmm. when there was a really intense kind of focus on this question, and really, um, really intense uh, criticism of avenues institutions where evolutionary biology is being taught. Um, that you know, I I started paying attention to this one question because to me, it's the only actually serious objection to evolutionary biology, which is, you know, how could a good loving creator God create through a process that involves so much suffering and death? Yeah. To me, that's the only serious question really like all these other questions about, um, how do we have a literal, how do we have a Sabbath day if we don't have a literal Sabbath week and so on, you know, to me, those are actually non issues and I could explain why, but you don't need to go into that. Just people just need to read your book. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) But this question is, I think, a legit. It's a very serious question, um, and without without going through the whole argument of the book, I would just say that um, that a shifting point for me in my own thinking about the, the question was when I realized that no matter what, w- whether you're a creationist who believes in you know literal. Sic- Six, what is our current language in the
0: church? Like consecutive 24 hour periods, <laughs> literal consecutive,
1: <laughs> contiguous 24 hour yeah. periods of, occurring within the recent past as we experience them today. Uh, and uh, and of course, even that's probably not good enough because, um, you know, relativity of time, you'd have to specify where your clock is based. So, you yes. know, <laughs> as measured by a clock positioned at Greenwich Mean Time <laughs> or Garden Mean Time, I joke in the book. Um, so, um, yeah, so, so basically, um, you had this realization, I had this kind of epiphany that even if you're, you know, the most kind of, uh, even if you read Genesis one in the most kind of rigidly literalistic, and by that, I mean, kind of scientific, you're trying to make it fit a modern scientific chronological framework, because that's kind of what we demand of, of, uh, of the Bible being modernist people who, who think science is the highest kind of truth. Even if you take that approach, you're still stuck with the same dilemma actually. Yeah. Which is animals are suffering. So how did it get that way? Mm -hmm. And it turns out that, um, that, that the most kind of literalistic, Rigidly literalistic approach to things doesn't actually um, resolve the animal the- del- suffering dilemma in any kind of very satisfying way. At least, so I argue in the book. And so that being the case, um, there's problem. There's there are enough problems to go around for all of us that um, that I think. You know, everyone should have a, have uh, some epistemological and hermeneutical humility on this and not be extremely uh, um, assertive about things. Nevertheless, I feel that um, a kind of theistic evolutionary framework, or I pref- would prefer to call it a kind of progressive creationist framework, actually in some ways can solve, or not solve, but at least get us closer to uh, a resolution of the problem
0: of animal suffering than the, the, the alternatives. So, um, continuing on with (laughs) this, uh, on the via negativa, I'm thinking that, um, I'd love to kind of know what you're working on these days. Um, what's, what, what, what are you enjoying writing and editing? Hmm. Well, I'll be really honest. I've had a bit of a writer's block for a while. Oh, interesting. Yeah. What's, if I guess if you knew what was causing it, you would probably have a solution. But what what <laughs> is it? What does it feel like to be so blocked?
1: Um, you know, I think part of part of it is that I've you know when when I was starting off, kind of writing things, you kind of um, think to yourself like, oh, I wonder if I could get something published, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And so you submit an article somewhere, and it actually gets published. I think, in fact, Spectrum Magazine was maybe one of the first that published anything written by me. And you're like, okay, wow. You know, I got something out there. And then you th- say, well, I wonder if I could um, get something published in maybe a non Adventist publication. Yeah. You know, is it, cause maybe it's a little bit of writers insecurity. You, sure. You're like, well, maybe my writing isn't that good. Maybe it's just the people who, you know, <laughs> know me who are willing to put up with this stuff or something. Right. Um, so I submitted some things outside of the Adventist context, um, including to a Catholic publication, Commonweal magazine. Uh-huh. Yeah. And great. they started, they published, um, several of my, my articles, even, even on the cover of the magazine. And, and, um, and then at some, so at some point you say, well, I wonder if I can get something published in a peer reviewed journal, Yeah, which is of course the benchmark for a scholarship. And I, I did that. And, um, and then at some point you say, well, I wonder if I could write a book. So there's kind of this thing of, of just like aiming for, um, for things because, you know, it's like the next thing. Sure. And, and then, you know, so I published, um, a couple books and, uh, the first one was with Whipfenstock Cascade yeah. Books. The title of the, the book was called Anarchy and Apocalypse. It's a collection of essays about violence And then the second book came out death before the fall. And then, you know, I was really wondering like, could I get a book published in a really top tier academic press? And um, so my most recent book, which came out in 2017 is called humanism and the death of God. And the subtitle is uh, searching for the good after Darwin, Marx and Nietzsche. And um, you know, and that was published by Oxford and this, this has a lot to do maybe with my writer's block. You know, you'd feel like, okay, this is a, like you're, you're reaching some kind of pinnacle of publishing. Well, OUP unfortunately priced the book at like $80. <laughs> <laughs> and so I, I honestly think that you could probably almost count on one hand, the number of people who've read the book, you know, it's just like out there molding on library bookshelves or something. Yeah. And you think to yourself, wow, I spent 10 years of my life, you know, yeah. writing this thing, pouring my heart and soul into this book and the the hundreds or thousands of hours of research that yeah. go incredible. into something like that. For what? What does it mean? What does it mean? It's meaningless.
0: Meaningless, meaningless. <laughs> it's all meaningless, Alex. Really quickly, I'll jump in there because I'm reading a great biography on Nietzsche <laughs> called I Am Dynamite by Sue Prudeau, and it, he actually kind of goes through a similar experience. He writes um The Birth of Tragedy and he feels like really no one reads it and no one understands it and he gets bummed out. So he actually turns to kind of releasing short um kind of longer than essays, shorter than books, obviously not a novella, and he just has this series of them um and uh it's kind of a fascinating model. Anyway, yeah. Um, but he he was a he was a kind of early in his academic career and felt like I did all this work. This is a great idea. No one cares.
1: Yeah. So you were telling me about that book um, the other day out on the ski slopes. Yes. And uh, I'm definitely going to read it.
0: Yeah, I recommend it. It's uh, incredible, and it um, really ha- does a nice job of showing um, how he ha- basically his kind of his his intellectual journey. But also his intellectual insecurity and his friendship with Wagner um, shows that um, underneath it, Nietzsche was really an artist. Mm, mm. Yeah, sounds great. Uh, maybe a failed artist. Um, So what are you working on now or what are you thinking about what's moving you outside? We want to end on hope here at Spectrum. We hope (laughs) springs eternal. Um, I hope that you are working on something because your writing is um, so appreciated by folks that read you. Well, you
1: know, I, um, all of my books, actually, my three books didn't really begin as books. They all began as essays, Mm -hmm or short things I wrote here and there. And at some point you say, Oh, I wonder if I can pull this together and, and um, you know, adds, add a little bit of meat to the bones and turn it into a book. Right. And so similarly, I have a, another collection of essays I'm working on. Um, that's about right now, a 10 chapter book with two chapters, maybe one and a half chapters to be written. Mm-hmm. And the working title of the book is Requiem for a Remnant. Requiem for a Remnant. Oh, that's I right. like that. Yep, um, and it's basically essays that have appeared through the years, for the most part, in pl- Spectrum, among other places. Um,
0: so, um, and is it just going to? What are the titles of some of those articles? Sure. Um,
1: well, one of the one of the art, one of the chapters is going to be titled "No Sanctuary in Muganero." Mm-hmm. And uh, it's basically wrestling with the Rwandan genocide and Adventist complicity in the Rwandan genocide. Um, There's another chapter in the book that is titled the devil and Donald Trump. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Which actually appeared as an article in America magazine, which is the Jesuit magazine. And, uh, I published it there because even though I believe this article is Adventist to its core, it would never be published in the Adventist review. (laughs) So if, so if one cannot name the beast in Adventist periodicals any longer, one goes
0: to the Jesuits. Well, um, I'm looking forward to that coming out and reading it and, um, really enjoyed talking with you about, uh, some of the, um, Projects that you've um, completed, and also a little bit about the realness of what it's like being a writer. Uh, Thank you so much for talking with us today. Very welcome. Yes, I knew Sister White. We will not fear.
1: The
0: oh, I'll never forget it.